Hey, Jerry, I'm so excited. Our podcast, Because I Want to Know and Hibbly Horror Stories, are doing a live event together in the Dallas area. Yep, Saturday, October 16th. It's going to be so much fun. Dude, you just completely ignored the fact that Mysterious Circumstances and Hillbilly Horror Stories have a live event the night before in Galveston, Texas. I did not. As a matter of fact, Justin, I was just going to bring up the Galveston show on Friday, October 15th. Jerry, why are you doing a commercial with Justin? Once again, you have given him special treatment over me. Besides, we have a special private dinner show in Memphis on that Tuesday, October 12th. Trace I would never give anyone preferential treatment over you. Of course you wouldn't. Thank you, Justin. Um, hello, Leslie Fear over here. Now everyone's ignoring me. Enough. Get your tickets and more information at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. We will see you there unless we kill each other first. Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey everyone, today I'm joined with Jackie Servion, and she is a social worker I met on TikTok. At the age of 19, she was convicted of drug charges and actually was sentenced to prison. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Hi, thank you for having me on here. I tell you, I was mesmerized by your videos on TikTok, I gotta say, and you were all over my feed. And the more I listened to your story and the more I heard about your background, I had to have you on. I've never had anyone like you on my podcast as far as your background and what happened to you that led up to your charges. So, Jackie, can you kind of describe to me your childhood and then how, yeah, and then what happened when you became, you know, a a young adult and what transpired? Yeah. So I grew up, um, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, to a very, very young mother that came from a very traditional Italian family. So they were a family of business owners, Italians, and my mom lost her mother at a very early age at 17 and became suicidal oh, wow. pretty much right off the bat. And she, I think at 17, she had like chased a bottle of pills with a bottle of vodka, tried to kill herself, had to get a trach oh. in her throat, um, went into a coma. And that kind of started her down a path of drug addiction. Oh, no. Um, very, very early in life. And her whole family, they literally just, like, turned their back to her. I think that they didn't know what to do with that kind of devastation. And so they just kind of walked away from her and let her go into the street by herself for the most part. Oh, and her father was in the military, and he was traveling across seas because my grandpa and her, her mother, my maternal grandmother, weren't together anyways, and I don't think he was really aware of what was going on. Okay. So my mom became a drug addict at a very, very young age without any support and kind of went to the streets of Chicago, ended up having four kids, and was just living in complete and utter devastation. Um, from you know the time I was born, for the most part, we were you know born um, with drugs in our system. We were born oh, no. in just a kind of poverty that I think is indescribable right. <laughs> to most. You know, I think my grandfather has talked to me about it a little bit as, you know, as I gotten older, but he was just like, I've never seen anything like it before. And so he came to pull us out, but my mom's, her drug addiction had just spanned out through our entire life and led into her basically getting involved in a very serious domestic violence marriage that she was in for most of my childhood mm. with a man that was a white supremacist. He was a motorcycle gang member, so he was part of the Hell's Angels. And he was a devastating alcoholic. Um, he was probably, 
Um, if there was a definition of a sociopath, he hit everything. Like my my therapist that I see, she you know she was like, I could actually pull out what a definition is, and you would see that this is what this is, and his situation is untreatable. Oh, <laughs> wow. There are ways that he people how to cope, but. Um, I grew up with watching him try to kill my mother for the most part um, oh on a God. weekly basis whenever he would come in in this, like, you know, just drug and alcohol-induced rage for the most part throughout our childhood. And that is kind of how we grew up is just getting, you know, as children, it wasn't just like a little bit of punishment here and there. It was, you know, growing up in a burnt-down trailer with him trying to kill my mother, us growing up thinking we're completely worthless because that's the message that we got our whole life. You know, I mean, I remember, I think it was probably about my son and daughter's age, you know, between the age five and eight, and writing runaway from home letters because I just felt so unloved. I felt so unimportant. Mm -hmm. I was like, maybe if I ran away from home, somebody will come look for me, and they will prove that they actually do, that that I'm worth, you know, that I'm worth loved, and I'm loved, and that I'm actually important in this family. And, you know, that is kind of, that was like the theme of my childhood. It was like this very deep grief that was laced with violence and abuse and getting hit so bad that we would have blood and bruises. Mm. And um, Was this your mother's boyfriend at the time? This wasn't your real father, correct? No, I don't actually know my real father. Um, I have never met him. I don't even know what he looks like. I've never seen a picture of him. Um, I do know that my sister, my oldest sister, had memories of him, and she would tell us that they were um, sexual predators. So our paternal grandfather was pretty consistently engaging in molesting us as children. Wow. Oh, honey. Yeah, and it it was known in our family, but my mom was so addicted to drugs and so lost in drug addiction at you know, 18, 19 years old and no support. And I mean, what could she do anyways? <laughs> well, and you know, it's, it's tragic and it's horrific, but it makes me understand a little bit more about how you got into this in so much trouble and you really weren't even doing anything wrong. Yes, you were probably hanging out with the wrong people, but tell my listeners what happened when, you know, when you were a late teenager at, at around 19, 18, 19, uh, hanging out with some yeah. of these people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could probably start like, you know, around 16 years old, I got my very first job at Burger King and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm valuable. With that kind of work comes a lot of partying. Oh. And I started partying pretty, you know, pretty early at 16 years old, getting just like blackout drunk. Um, it was just like anything to get out of my house and I think whenever I first started experiencing like drugs and alcohol, I was like, okay, well, this is better than the sadness that I experienced. So, I mean, yeah, is it wrong? Yeah. Do I like doing this? Not necessarily, but um, I'm connecting with people. It seems like it should be fun. And so that kind of continued out through like the last end of my high school. And I was actually a straight A student um, all throughout school because school is something I was really good at. And then, as I got to about 18 years old, I got involved into the underground rave scene, which was, I think now they call it EDM, like the EDM thing. It's like very popular now, but back then it was just like very underground. A lot of the major DJs, I was able to see them before they were even considered to be popular. <laughs> um, and, you know, for me, it was just like I had tried XC and I started dancing and it was like going to church. That's the only way I know how to explain it to people. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, but 
for me, it felt so healing to be a little bit under the influence and just dance because for me, it was like a release of grief um, because I wasn't dancing with people. I was literally just dancing all night long by myself in these party scenes. You said it was an underground rave scene. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like, um, if you would consider like the very popular electronic music scene nowadays, um, it was like way before it got popular. So it was just, I mean, they would, I think um, party promoters would rent out like warehouses and, you know, hire DJs and they would put the word out through like these very colorful little, almost like a postcard. (laughs) So they would make these cute little postcards and pass them out through party scenes, basically drug dealers and their, their connections and their connections, connections. Yeah, and so, you know, being involved in, like, the dancing thing, because I had gotten really into breakdancing and pop and locking, and I became very good at it through, like, a very small-town party scene initially, and then brought that home with me to Tennessee, because I had first started getting into that in Iowa, where I live now. Mm, And, yeah, brought it back with me home to Tennessee, and was out partying with some of my friends, you know, going to the club regularly, still working, you know, doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but on the weekends, I would go out and just party and dance and go to these raves. And um, so you were kind of like DJs and other other dancers (laughs) and they would start inviting me to their house parties and hanging out with them. And in this um, one of the um, I think one it was actually all happened within about eight months. It was a very short period of time that some DJs that I had been hanging out with here and there on the weekend had said, hey, um, there's this girl who I knew she was part of the party scene. I knew that she was one of their trusted friends. He said, the DJ said, hey, um, I know that today is your birthday. It was my 19th birthday. He said, would you be interested in bringing her to go pick up some drugs and I'll give you some, some ecstasy pills so you can go party with your sisters at the club. And he was like, it won't take up your whole night. It'll just be really quick. Get a driver, come back, and then you can go. And I was like, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a great idea. I didn't, you know, I didn't yeah. want to spend my money on anything like, like that. A great idea. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so I brought her, um, this girl who was, she wasn't my friend. I still don't know her last name. And I brought her. So, you know, she got in my car. I brought her where she needed to go and brought her to two different gas stations. Eventually she met up with who she needed to meet up with and got back in my car with a whole backpack full of drugs. She brought this backpack into my car. You know, we were in this parking lot and she starts pulling out bags and bags and bags oh, of wow. ecstasy pills. And I was like, oh nice. God, yeah. <laughs> this is very, this blow. This is major. Yeah. And at the time I was just like, it didn't even, it didn't even register. I knew that was a lot. I did not know what that meant. I just knew that I wanted to get her out of my car Right. I wanted to get her where she needed to go and get her out of my car and move on right. and not do anything like that and you again. were what, eight, <laughs> were you 18 or 19 at this point? Um, I was 18, so it was my 19th birthday. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, yeah. What happened after that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I know, I'm laughing because it's like, it's like laughing at the absurdity of it. It's like yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, and so, we, we start driving her, you know, I, I say we, it's like I started driving her back to, because we were about two hours away from where her house was. Right. And on the way back to driving her, I was just like, okay, so you've got all these drugs in here. You are under the influence. I am not. <laughs> Um, I just want to take back roads to get you back home because I'm so scared of getting pulled over by the police because you are in my car. Right. And this is really scary. Because, Um, I mean, let's be honest, you did the drugs, you know, some of these drugs, but you never dealt with dealing them. And that's, that was scary. I didn't deal with dealing them. And I, I also wasn't, 
lost in drug addiction. You know, I was simply, I was actually living a pretty mostly productive life. You know, I was still working. I was still getting the things done that I needed to get done in my day to day and was mostly just partying on the weekends. You know, so um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in a, in a drug addiction. I was just kind of in this party scene. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. and it, it is fair to say that I was getting a little deeper into it than what I would feel would be safe. Right. Well, well, you were you were eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, I I don't even know how smart I was back then either. So you can't really, and that's all you knew. That whole scene was really all you knew your whole life. So uh, it, it's understandable, I, and you knew, but you knew better. And I and I get that too. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there there was the logic that I knew that there's a drug. I knew drugs are bad. I knew drugs are like against the law. But at the same time, growing up with my parents dealing drugs, you know, selling drugs and using drugs, and everybody around us was in this drug scene. And I had always had this, it's actually really interesting, I had always had this really, like, judgmental opinion about very specific kinds of drugs. Um, but this one in particular was like, oh, it's just a party drug, and I'm not a drug addict. So right. I was just like, oh, maybe it's not that bad. Um, at the same time, I also... I wasn't aware of a lot of the shame that I had been carrying around anyways to be hanging out with these kinds of people that were this deeply involved. Um, But at no point did it actually register like the gravity of what these folks were doing and how serious this specific drug was, (laughs) you know, like that was, it's not not like I ever, because we didn't have access to the internet like we did now. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have any of this, right? Because this was in 2001. Okay. And um, how serious is ecstasy, you know, like laws okay. against drugs. It was like, we didn't really have access to that because you had to go to the library for that kind of stuff okay. back then. Okay, okay, yeah. So it was ecstasy yeah. and, and what is that, was that the only thing? It was just, just that? It was ecstasy and mushrooms. Okay, So magic okay. mushrooms. Okay, gotcha. I think it's, yeah, there's okay. an actual term for those, but... Yeah, and so, you know, driving her back, you know, this two-hour trek back, um, we start getting um, messages on her pager. So she's in my passenger seat. I'm driving her. She starts getting paged, and it's like 991. And so, you know, this is how old it was whenever pagers were a thing. And so she calls the number because they said if you get paged, something's, you know, something's the matter, you need to call us. So she calls them, and they're like, hey, how far away are you? And she's like, okay, we're at about this place. And then she starts getting more pages, and it's, it's never actually nine one one. It's always like nine one 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 or nine nine one one one, and I think that was them trying to like indicate to her, hey, something is actually wrong here. Okay. Yeah. Um. But you know, they kept calling and she kept giving them updates on where we were at and as far as the trip and whenever we finally got there, um, I was pulling up to just drop her off and. This is funny when I think of my young mind. I was kind of a little annoyed because I was like, okay, so I've literally spent my entire 19th birthday driving you to go pick up drugs. I just really want you to get out of my car, and now I don't get to see my family because it's late. It's like 2 in the morning. And so I was just ready to kind of get her out of my car and right. go home. Yeah. Um, but as I was pulling up, you know, to pull, they lived on this dead-end street, so I am pulling up to drop her off. And as she was getting out of my car, I looked over because she was getting out of my passenger seat, and I saw a flashlight just like rushing at us. And so I looked over at my side and she's looking like a deer in the headlights. And then suddenly we're just getting jerked out of our cars. Like we are slammed on the ground. Oh my God. And I have people shouting at me. I have this police dog in my face. I have like assault rifles pointed at me. And I have this man standing on my back with my hands behind my back, asking me if I have drugs on me or weapons. And I was just like, Oh, and it just happened so quickly that It was just like noise rustling, and then bam, you're on the ground. Oh my! Um, 
Jackie. And what had happened is I had dropped her off in the middle of a federal drug raid because they had been expecting this specific shipment for however long because they had been investigating this specific group of people for a couple of years, which I found out later inside of discovery, which is a process of understanding evidence in a court case. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So when that was happening, of course, you were scared to death. But what was going through your mind? What was it shock? I mean, I I just Yeah, yeah. there was literally nothing. It was just shock. It was, it was just like a trembling. My body was just trembling. You know, there, I mean, I almost couldn't even form words because whenever they asked me if I had any drugs on me, and I think that they had given me those five ecstasy pills. And I was like, in my young brain, I was like, yeah. And I went to pull my cigarette pack out of my pocket because I smoked at the time to give it to them. I was like, here, yes, take them. Yeah, um, yeah. And as soon as I did that, they like jerked even harder because they were thinking I was going to pull a weapon, I think. And, oh, my God. Um, at this point, I was just like, I had just went into complete and utter shock. And my body just was trembling. Oh. Um, oh. be like my teeth were chattering. Um, like the room was kind of spinning, you know, after they pulled us into the house, it was just like, I was literally, my, my teeth were just chattering. I can only imagine. So you're <laughs> pulled into these, was it federal agents cars? It wasn't even a, a police officer. It was more federal agent. Right? Yeah. And everybody in the house were federal agents. They had brought us into the house. That's what they had jerked us out of the car and brought us into the home where I was dropping her off at, which was the DJ's home, and they were conducting the federal drug raid inside of that house at the time, and they started interrogating us inside of the house in that room. And you know, it's funny because, Jackie, my thing is, you didn't have any prior charges. The only bad thing that you were doing, you were just hanging out with these people. That was really the only bad thing that was going on in your life, yet how the hell did they charge you with anything? I'm, yeah, is it just so association kind of thing? Well, so it was my vehicle. I was the one driving. And whenever she saw flashlights coming, she had dumped the backpack into the floorboard of my car, which oh. I didn't actually see that because I was just like, oh, something's happening, right? right it was just like, right. it was happening and nothing was registering, right? Because right. I was tired. It was late. And what I didn't know is that she had essentially, like, that backpack was in the floorboard of my car Mm. with nobody's name on it, you know. And for all I knew, it was like, there is a driver, this is a girl, and she has a backpack of drugs in her possession. Wow. Yeah, Um, okay. Well, that makes sense then. For them, you know, and thinking about their perspective, you know, it could have very well been that I was the mastermind of all of this and that they just didn't catch me in the investigation. That's true. Yeah, I can see how that would be misconstrued, um, especially, but you were just so dang young and you would think that these men who probably were dealing with seasoned drug dealers, I, I would assume that you would probably stand out as somebody so young, but maybe maybe they do start that young. I, I don't know. Well, they do, yeah, because the other girl was that young as well, and everybody in this age group, for the most part, they were all pretty young. I mean, I, I, I can't give exact ages or anything, but, you know, nobody was in their 30s. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was overall, it was just a really young group of kids. Yeah, and that's how um, they that's how they target were, you guys. They were the ones that were, I think, the, the heads of this, right. which I would later actually find out just more about that. <laughs> okay, so so tell me what happened after that. You know, give me like the, yeah. This, yeah. Yeah, so they brought us in that living room and they started interrogating us on site. And I didn't have the answers to the questions that they were asking and everybody else because I didn't know these people, right? I didn't even know the girl I was with her last name. I didn't know anybody's last name. Half of the people, I didn't even know their real first name because they went by 
like DJ names or party names. Right. Um, and so I'm over here, they're asking me these questions and I'm like, I don't actually have the answers to it. I never thought to ask for an attorney because I was just like, I, you know, like this isn't mine. <laughs> like, right. This isn't mine. They're like, well, where'd you go? I was like, we went here to a gas station. Well, who was there? I was like, I don't know who was there. I don't know who that person was, right. you know? And they're like, did you know what you're thinking of? I was like, no. And, you know, if you think from their perspective, they're like, it's all lies. <laughs> you know, because sure. everybody else in the room that was very seriously involved, they are saying the same things, but they do know the answers to those questions. Right. Um, so it was just the mass interrogation. And after they had kind of got through what they were going to get through with us, they handcuffed the two of us, the two girls, and put us in the back of police cars and brought us to the same jail together. And just kind of tossed us in for the most part. And from there, that was my very first experience with getting incarcerated. And I had spent several months inside of the county jail because I was very, very poor. Um, to indicate the level of poverty that I lived in is almost unbelievable. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, my family, you know, I think they had initially, they had charged me with federal kingpin charges. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even, I had no understanding of what that meant. There was, it didn't mean anything to me. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know that I went to jail and I had to start trying to find a way to get out knowing that nobody I knew had any money to get me out on a $500,000 bond. Oh my God, you know? $500,000. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah it was gosh. a $500,000 bond. And the girl that I was with, she came from a very wealthy family. And I think she was just in the party scene as well. And um, eventually I was just like, hey, and her parents got her out pretty much immediately. And I just said, hey, can you just please call my parents and let them know what's going on? Because they probably don't know. Right, you know, it was yeah. my mom. And from there, you know, I stayed in jail for several months until oh I kept having to go in front of a judge who kept trying to lower my bond because he kept lowering it. And he was like, can you get out with this amount? And I was like, no. Can you get out with this amount? No. Um, and eventually this just happened so many times. That it was almost like he was just like, you tell me what you think you can get out at. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? And, wow. Yeah. Because wow. I think, you know, he has all the evidence of the case sitting in front of him, you know. Right. And he's a federal court. I think he, you know, he already knows what's going to happen. He already knows, I think, that they're going to drop me out of federal court. But just to get me out of, like, out of jail to even start the court process without having to stay there the whole time. Right. Um, eventually, he got me down to a bond, and one of my best friends at the time, he came from a very wealthy family, and he asked his dad to get a loan to get me out of jail. Like, his dad co-signed on a loan to get me out that I ended up having to pay back. Oh, gosh. And the whole time, your mother's not even trying to help you, not even trying to see you at all? None of that? Well, no, she was. Um, right. I mean... Yeah, she was. And by the, by this time, my mom had already left the stepdad that had been super duper oh, abusive, and okay. she was with. Um, she had remarried with the guy that was pretty calm. I mean, he was he was kind. Okay. Um, he is kind. Um, but the, it didn't change the fact that we were a very very poor family, and no matter what it was, even if my parent my parents could even put their house up as part of collateral for a bond because it wasn't worth enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jackie. Okay. So you, you finally get out of federal prison, and then are you home for a while before the court starts again, or what happens then? Yep. Um, yeah, so I get bonded out, and then 
essentially what happens is you get arrested and then they start to set your initial court dates, which is where they go and they arraign you as for what your charges are. And then they start to go through where you either have your attorneys there or you get assigned a public attorney. And you start to go through the whole entire process of understanding what your charges are, what the evidence is, and how your legal team is able to start setting up a defense for you. And so I was assigned. And so I got out. I got bonded out and started in the court process. So I started showing up for court dates. And the very first one I showed up was was in a federal court. I was assigned a public attorney because I didn't have enough money to get a regular attorney. Right. And the girl that I was with was assigned as my co-defendant, which means that we would be going through that process together because we were together right. when we got arrested. And that was whenever my public attorney, he asked me, he said, do you know what your charges are? I said, no. He said, you're being charged with kingpin charges. Do you know what that means? I said, no, I don't. And he said, oh, my God, you are just a sad, stupid puppy, aren't you? And I was like, okay, maybe I am because... I don't know what that means. He said, this is the same thing as if you were to have murdered somebody. <gasps> he said, it's 25 to life. Oh, what you're being no. Oh. I, and that was like the second time I, it was like the second time I experienced like a full body shock because I was just like, I think at that moment I was like, oh, and it just like <laughs> the body has this really magical way of protecting you. Right. And so it's like, I just went into shock again, <laughs> you know, and I go into this courtroom and I'm blacking out because I don't know what's going on. You're 19. Um, I'm, I'm shaking. <laughs> I'm 19. shaking and shivering and chattering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're just a kid. I mean, my, I have a 21-year-old, and I still think she just she seems like just a kid to me. So I can only imagine you're barely out of high school. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Yep, and, you know, oh. just hit with the hardest charges for driving this girl because they think that, you know, this is like one of the largest drug busts in the region. You know, it was like very small-town Tennessee. Um, like the biggest drug bust for this kind of drug, which is a class A felony in the, probably in the whole entire region ever, wow. you know, uh, this is, it was a very big deal. Yeah. Um, you, now you're going through the court process of finding out what's going to happen. So tell me about that. Yep. Um, and so I, I, I do want to backtrack a little bit, like sure. from the initial time of getting out of jail and getting charged. Um, we actually, my family actually had to flee to a different city for a time because the people that were the drug dealers that did not get arrested, they were actually following myself and my family. What? Um, and intimidating and threatening us because they, because of like this whole snitching thing, oh, <laughs> because no. they were just determined that I wasn't going to tell any information and they didn't know me. So they didn't know what all I knew. They didn't know anything about me really, but they did find a way to find my family and we had to actually go to a different city and spend time there because we were being followed everywhere we were going. How scary. God. Yeah, and I didn't even know it, but my mom was like, Jackie, she's like, I need to tell you something. She brought me to a hotel one day, and she was like, we are going to a hotel. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, Jackie, I need to sit down and tell you, because even I didn't understand any of this. Right. Um, she's like, the people that you're involved with are following us. And I was like, what do you mean they're following mm-hmm. us? And she was like, they are following us. We are hiding. <laughs> um, and oh we had to kind of hide from them because we were in danger of them actually getting access to me. And so my mom oh. was doing everything in her power to keep me safe and her safe from what was essentially these people that had been involved in this really big drug ring and trying to keep this young girl, keep her mouth shut because they didn't know anything about me. <laughs> yeah, you didn't really mean anything to them. But did you tell 
you know, the law enforcement or the courts or your attorney, what you were having to do, were they kind of understanding that? Were you doing it under the rug or? Oh, yeah, it doesn't even like none of that even mattered to them. Um, the public attorney didn't care. He was just like, uh, yeah, you know, what, what do you expect? Like, look what you're involved in, you know. Um, he was kind of brash like that anyways. But none of that mattered, you know, because it was almost like I was involved in this really high-level drug case in this really small town. And it was just like, that's kind of what you signed up for, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, but, and so th- th- that was that. And then we ended up going into federal court, um, getting told my charges. And then we kind of immediately turned around and we went into what was called discovery, which is where the federal agents got on and they started talking about the evidence they had to be able to proceed with the case against us okay. as co-defendants. And um, one of, it was actually my arresting officer who was up on the stand and he said, um, as the judge was questioning and as attorneys were questioning, he said, in my specific case, he said, did you know who this person is? Speaking of me. And he was like, she was not in our investigation. Um, oh. And because they were showing aerial photographs of evidence and saying, we have all this evidence, but this girl was not in any of our investigation. Well, we God. only knew of her from the day that she was arrested. Okay. And so on that day, the judge knew that they wouldn't be able to charge me with the federal charges. So they dropped me down out of federal court into state court. Okay. Um, Okay. That's at least one good thing. It's it's like a whirlwind. And it's it's a miracle that I even remember any of this because so much shock was happening because, you know, it's like a lot of amnesia happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, what? I mean, I, <laughs> wow. So, so now the, the federal charges have been dropped. So now you're just in the, um, the state, uh, kind of situation where they're dealing with how to sentence you. Yeah. They're dealing with how to sentence me. And so I was out from the time I actually got bonded out with my friend wanting me out, going into all this court proceedings, into my sentencing hearing. Um, it was about a year and a half, I would say. Um, that much time had passed. And in that amount of time, so I had been dropped from federal court into state court, and I was still charged with very serious charges. They were still um, intent to deliver or manufacture Schedule oh, 1 narcotics, which was yeah. still a Class A, Class B felony, but it was charged differently. So the amount of years looked a lot different. And one thing I, I, you know, I told you before we started recording that I interviewed someone that was arrested on federal charges and federal charges, just to my um, listeners, that's the same across every single state. When you're not charged with something that's federal and it's just a state by state situation, things can be different, correct? Yeah, from state to state, it goes by each jurisdiction and how they want to proceed with the charges and how they want to proceed in their specific jurisdiction. And you were in Tennessee, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, okay, so keep going. Yeah, and so I was dropped into state court, still had very serious charges, but what I started to do after I got bonded out is I just went immediately to my siblings, who were my my siblings are my best friends, and we were just like, okay, um, we don't know what to do, so you're just going to go to work. (laughs) You're going to go to work, and you're going to go to college, because that is probably what everybody else that's not getting in trouble is doing, and that seems to be successful. That's working for them. Okay. So I just went, and I started immediately working and worked literally all day, every day. That's all I did. Okay. I worked serving tables at a restaurant that my sister had worked at. It was family-owned, and, you know, they knew what had happened because my sister told them. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of family-owned restaurants is when you work for families, um, 
you know, it's, it's very special, but I just work and I worked for this family and they supported me throughout my entire time of going through court proceedings. And I ended up getting a, the only attorney in the whole city that would hire or take on my case was a personal injury attorney. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Because I didn't have enough money to pay like the $50,000 up front for them to take on a case. And my mom was like, well, there's this personal injury attorney that I know. And he said he would be willing to take on your case and he would take payments from you because, you know, I was only able to make payments and I couldn't get a loan. My family couldn't get a loan. So I ended up walking into this felony drug case with a personal injury attorney at my side who was not a criminal attorney. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I I just worked. I worked serving tables. I started going to college. And um, during the process of this, you know, I would just stop by my attorney's office. I never spoke to him. I would just stop and I would pay his paralegals whatever money I could pay him towards the account balance of what he said he would do to take on my case and then I would just leave right I was too scared to even ask him about my case I was scared to even ask him what was happening and even if he did tell me I probably still would not have understood what was happening because I just I my brain was just trying to protect me the whole time you know it was just like stay as far away from this as possible just do what is supposed to be the right thing which is working and going to school and don't think about it right (laughs) you know so but eventually I had to go back in front of for my sentencing hearing, which was uh, the day that she was going to be, my judge was going to be sentencing me for this really long process of going in on drug charges. Right. And on my sentencing hearing, again, here I am going into shock. Um, and Aww. it's like, how many times can a person go into shock? Yes. Um, I went in for my sentencing hearing and she's telling me, she says, I'm going to give you what is called a, um, a pretrial diversion which is prejudicial diversions, which is in Tennessee where if you've never been in trouble before, they will give you this, which is a suspended sentence. Basically is they will put you on probation for what your sentence is supposed to be. And if you successfully complete your probation, then it will be able to be expunged from your record. Okay. So it was actually a pretty great deal what she was doing. But the day before my sentencing hearing, I had been working in Nacogdoches, Texas. And I don't know if you guys remember whenever Space Shuttle Columbia crashed into Earth, it crashed into Texas. Well, where I was working, we were FEMA contracted. So we were the catering company that was called out to feed all the firefighters and all the workers that were cleaning up the debris. So we, you know, called up our mobile kitchens. We were in Nacogdoches, Texas. And I told my boss, I said, hey, I've got my sentencing hearing in two days. So I hopped on a Greyhound from Texas back to Tennessee. And I had a roommate at the time. She was in med school. And I got home, and I started having a panic attack because I was so scared. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going into my sentencing hearing tomorrow, and I don't know what's happening, but I know I'm really scared. I'm really sad. And I just kind of had started having a panic attack, and I didn't, you know, I had never heard of what a panic attack was. I didn't know um, about anything about mental health. I didn't understand what trauma is. Right. I didn't understand any of that. You know, those weren't conversations that people were having back then. Right. But I did know I was having a panic attack, and I thought I was dying. I was like, maybe you need to call the ambulance. And she was like, no, um, I don't know what to do. She was like, but I think that if you just smoke a joint, then you probably will be fine. It will calm you down, and then we can figure out what to do. Gotcha. And I was like, well, yeah. what if they drug test me tomorrow? And she was like, no, they're not going to drug test you. It's going to be fine. She's like, I don't actually know what to do with you anyways right now because you are so out of control with, like, the tears. And I was like, okay, well, let's try it. 
And I just, I do want to mention, like, I, from the time I got in trouble and I had been doing ecstasy, um, like, partying, and after I got arrested, I completely stopped doing anything. Yeah, you were um, scared to death. Anything at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was so scared. Sure. Um, I had smoked cigarettes, and I think I would probably drink sometime. You know, I was part of the college scene anyways, but nothing excessive or anything. But I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do anything that I felt like was going to get me in trouble. And so whenever she said, hey, let's, you know, smoke this joint, I was like, okay, well, I'm afraid I'm going to get drug tested, but I also don't know what to do because I feel like I'm dying. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're freaking out. Um, yeah, freaking out. And went to court the next day, and she offers me this prejudicial diversion. And but then she says, "Okay, this is what it is. Do you understand what that means?" I was like, "Yeah, I think so." And she then says to me, "She says, I'm going to ask you to go take a drug test. Can you pass it? (laughs) Can you pass this drug test?" And the shame, right? I was just like, "Oh, you've gone all this time with nothing." You know, and oh, God bless you, girl. So, and you were afraid this was going to happen, and it happened. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I was so ashamed of myself. I did not know I could turn to my attorney and say, I'm going to fail this drug test. I had no idea that there was a support system standing beside of me in the form of an attorney that I had paid a lot of money for. Right. And so what? instead what I did is I looked at both of them, and she said, can you pass this drug test? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can pass it. Because there was no way in the world I was going to tell this judge who I was terrified of in the first place um, that I had done the stupidest thing in the world. And so I just literally put my tail between my legs, put my head down, and walked off, knowing that I was going to fail a drug test. And (laughs) so what she did is I went and failed the drug test, and she brought me immediately back in the court and charged me with felony aggravated perjury, which violated the probation that I had started before oh, I walked out of the courtroom. Oh, it undid everything. Uh-huh, yeah. And so she charged me, which violated the probation, and it violated it by getting me charges, which was an aggravated perjury, which is a felony. Uh-huh. Um, so I ended up with two of those, which means that I can also never get my charges expunged that will always be on my record. And I'm also a convicted liar. <laughs> so... Oh, so there's that. Gosh. Well, at 19, come on. I Oh, Jackie. And, you know, it's just, oh, gosh, what do you do? You're so young. I And he, that's the thing with the guy that I interviewed that preps people for prison now. Something kind of similar, not exactly the same, but kind of similar happened to him where he didn't know and he lied about something he did do. And I, it might have been something. I can't remember now. I have to go back and listen to it. And he didn't know he could have just told him the truth and it would have been so much better. If you just told the truth. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's like, I think there are a lot of people, a lot of naysayers that are like, you, by explaining yourself, by understanding yourself better, they're like, oh, you think you shouldn't, like you're making excuses for why you did something stupid. And it's like, well, a little bit deeper than that. You know, in my situation, having grown up in the household that I grew up, um, anytime we told the truth or a lie, it didn't matter. We got such vicious abuse that I had grown up being terrified of any kind of authority. Um, and I also felt very silent. It didn't matter what I said. Right. That any time that I was in trouble, it was just like, you know, I just kind of shut down, you know, because that is how I grew up. Because any time that I got in trouble growing up, even as a kid, you know, whenever you get in trouble as a kid, it could have been anything. It could have been for not washing the dishes good enough. It could have been for being late for school. It could have been for um, arguing with my siblings. That would result in us getting beat. Oh. I mean, not like a little bit, you know. 
Um, and so you grow up with this terrible fear of authority. You grow up with this terrible fear of talking and being honest and because it didn't matter anyway, right? Right. right. Yeah, no, it didn't. Um, and and the thing is, and you know, in your situation, uh, you have to consider what you'd already gone through in your life. You have to consider the things that you had been exposed to and, and the mindset you would have been no matter what. And a lot of people say, like you said, oh, you knew better. Well, you know, not really. You know, you knew things were probably not the best um, decision, but you were never given that opportunity to make the best decisions in your life. So how could you have known you know, to do anything better than you already did, you, you know, and, and the fact that you're so smart and the fact that you were so smart in school, does it negate the fact that you were so young? How the heck did you know? Yeah. yeah and I think that that's a really interesting thing. And, you know, one of the things, as I have talked more publicly about this in my own community with very successful and well-known prominent people in the city, is one of the things that we have talked about is like, you know, folks that are doing really well in life, it's like, are your decisions your own, right? If you are taught your whole life how to make good decisions, if you're taught how to go into, if you're taught pathways to success, if you are taught ways of communication, if you're taught ways of love, if you, you know, it's like those are learned things that right. may not have been your own decisions because that is what home training looks like, right? That is what people training looks like right. as children. Whenever you're taught the opposite of that, that also, um, that is what training children, that is what the outcome is. Right. No, it <laughs> is. No, it, um, and it's a, is also a trainer. It's a learned yeah, behavior. Yeah. 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 No, it absolutely is. Okay. So they charge you for this perjury. So are you immediately sent to, or do you have to wait it yeah. out for, okay, tell me. Nope. Nope. Um, I am immediately shackled in, oh. in front of my mom and my sister and uh, my siblings and they bring me back in the courtroom she scolds me. She says, the judge says, basically, you called the drug test. You lied. And I just had my head down the whole time, right? Yeah. And oh, she yeah. said, um, you think that you're this is pretty, pretty little girl that can get away with whatever she wants. She said, you think that going to college and working, she said, you think that that means something. She said, good luck. Oh, my God. Good luck going to college while you're in prison. Mm. And, you know, and so from there, not only did she shame me, right, for right. making this choice, which was a terrible, a terrible. Had I known that I could tell somebody that I had felt this drug test and explain my situation why and right. trusted that they would believe me, <laughs> you know, that might have been a whole different conversation. I may have never been dishonest about that, you right. know, because right. I didn't know that. Oh, right. That was trauma talking. Yeah. That was trauma responses and action. Absolutely. Um, but I didn't know any of that at the time. And so she brought me back in. She shamed me. And then I was brought immediately into the county jail, and I didn't leave there until I was released from prison oh. um, two years later. Okay, Jackie, we're going to get into this. <laughs> now, this is a whole different dynamic than anything you had ever experienced ever in your life. So first day, what happened? <laughs> Well, I mean, first day, I actually am getting on intake, and so you have to go through intake, and they actually drug test me again, Right. and, you know, they stick you in a holding cell, and they start the intake process, and while I was in the holding cell, I actually went to the bathroom, you know, you're in this cement room with a toilet on the wall, a metal toilet on the wall, wow. and, but they pull me out at some point, and they're like, they scream your name, and they start bringing me in, and they said, you need to take a drug test, and I was like, okay, I can't pee. I just went to the bathroom and the two jailers start screaming in my face. Oh. Um, I mean, they are just screaming at me and they said, if you don't pee, 
we're going to take you back in front of the judge and we're going to charge you with refusing to take this drug test. Oh, my God. And so they were intimidating me. They were threatening me. Um, and I was just, like, breaking down crying because in that instance, I knew I was like, I have no voice. I have no power. Oh. I have no say-so over my body or my thoughts or my words or anything. Um, I said, no matter what I say or do, um, nothing is going to be believed here. And they have every right to do whatever they want to to me right here and right now. Um, and it was so apparent from the very first day that I was brought into jail. Um, and these are the correction officers? These were the jailers, like the intake jailers okay. that okay. kind of go through the process. Yeah. Okay. And so they scream at me and eventually, you know, it's like I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm like, I, it's not that I don't want to take a drug test because I can. I will do it. I just need, I need water. I need something. I, you know, I just need some time and then I will pee in this cup. Um, and they're over here threatening me with more charges for failing a drug test or for not um, taking a drug test. And I was right. like, no, you know, it's like, that's not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm saying, you know, and I'm pleading with them. And they are like chiding me and making fun of me until finally I get to the point where it's like I'm completely and utterly broken down because I'm so scared of getting more charges. I'm scared of this whole entire thing. And eventually I ended up peeing in this cup. And then it was just like it never happened. Like they just like almost like it never happened. <laughs> and oh, they God. brought me into intake and stripped me down naked, made me squat, cough um, in front of the jailers, in front of um, the people that were there. And then they brought me into this room where they give me this roll-up of clothing that smells. The only way I can explain what jail clothing smells like is it smells like death shit and oh. a very, very old grandmother's house that oh. hasn't been taken care of themselves. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so I was brought from a holding tank, got my fingerprints done, and they check all of your orifices, so they make sure that they actually make sure you don't have anything in your vaginal cavity, anything in your mouth, in your hair, and then they brought me into the actual jail cell where I would spend many, many months before I got transferred to a prison. And the very first day, it's like upon getting in, it's like, you, you know, I'm a young girl, like very, very scared. I don't know what to expect. Never been to jail. Right. Um, I also think, just like everybody else, I'm like the worst people in the world are here in jail. And I'm going to get hurt. I'm, you know, I don't know what to expect here. All I knew is that you have to find a way to get through it. You're like, you're going to just have to survive this because right. you don't have a choice. Right. No. <laughs> yeah, but I think the reality of it was it's my very first day. It's like I get assigned all my stuff. I get assigned a mattress and a blanket and a sheet and my prison clothing, which is a jumpsuit, and I get assigned my bunk. And the very first thing, I get in there, I sit down, I start getting my stuff settled in, and the girls are sitting on this metal picnic table in the middle of this jail cell because we are in an open pod. It wasn't like you have two people to a cell. It was like everybody was in one big room together. Oh, wow. And they say, you, bring your paperwork and get off your bunk. And I was like, me? (laughs) Me, you? You you, you mean me? And I was like, "Um, do I have to? And they were like, get your paperwork. Get down here. We're going to check you for life, and you're going to show us your paperwork. (laughs) And there comes a point when you're like, well, I am going to do what they're asking me to do. (laughs) So I get off my bunk. I bring my paperwork, and I sit down. They said, sit down right here. And one of the girls starts going through my hair for life, and the other girl starts reading my paperwork to make sure that I am um, what I'm in prison for. So that way they can inform the rest of the inmates in the room of what that looks like 
And why does that matter to them, though? I mean, you know? Yeah, um, I would find out later, it would be much later into this whole prison experience and jail experience that it matters because if you have crimes against children, so if you are what is considered like a child molester or a child abuser, you are going to have a very, very, very hard time while you're in there. Um, And so they check everybody's papers whenever you very first come in. It's not like... The jailers are doing this. It's the inmates. They are checking each other's papers so that way they can establish where you stand non-verbally inside of a prison hierarchy and a jail hierarchy. Wow. I didn't even think about that dynamic. Yeah. And I had never, you know, for me, that wasn't apparent. You know, I was just like, I had no idea about any of that. Um, But that that is the very first thing that happens is you have to let other inmates establish where you stand in the hierarchy. And whenever they started reading my paperwork, they immediately, the mood kind of lightened up and they started joking around with me at that point. Okay. Finally, a little tiny bit of a break, I guess for now. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, and I remember on your videos, there's all this etiquette stuff that you had to learn. So tell my listeners about that kind of stuff. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Let me tell you something. I'm actually having a phone conversation Actually, a video conversation later with one of the girls that I'll tell you about here today. Um, yeah, there is an entire hierarchy. There is an entire way to be and to succeed in jail and prison. There is so much etiquette that you have to know just to be able to fit in with that. Because whenever you are in a room with a bunch of other people in this place, you, nobody can go anywhere. You have to learn how to live with each other. And that includes everybody in there is coming from a different background, but there is like this inherited etiquette system that happens in jails and prison that is just like passed on from inmate to inmate through the culture of the whole entire institution of being inside of that room that you have to follow um, and you learn the hard way. (laughs) You either learn the hard way or you, um, you are going to learn the hard way in some ways. Or you can hope that other inmates will teach you so that way you don't have to learn the hard way. Right. And if I had come in with child abuse charges or sexual abuse charges against children or anything, I would have learned the hard way. But coming in as young as I was, mm. um, I think that for the most part, they were able to see me as a peer. So they were more willing to say, hey, these are kind of things that this is what you do whenever you need to get your lunch, um, breakfast. And if I would... Let's say, like, one of the things is whenever you go in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner for your mealtimes, because they just put these nasty trays and are pulling these things out and just passing them through this hole or through an open jail door, um, you have to learn who's able to go first. And if you go first, they will literally say, you need to get back to the back of the line because the pregnant women and the old people are the ones that go first. And they will tell you by screaming at you, or just by telling you, depending on how you interact with the other women. Wow. Um, and a lot of it just depends on how you come in interacting. So if you come in, you know, guns a-blazing, you're probably going to have a harder time. But right. for me, in general, I'm a very kind person. I'm also not a pushover at the same time. Right. You know, I right. grew up in a situation where I had to learn that I had to defend myself. Sure. And so I came in knowing that I'm not going to let people push me over, but I'm also going to be kind because that's who I am. So you just kind of learn through the day-to-day. You learn by watching. You learn the hard way. It's like I remember going and, you know, whenever you realize you're in this room by yourself, um, well, with all these other people, but essentially you're by yourself and you cannot go anywhere. You are not getting out. (laughs) 
you know, in my case, I had an eight-year prison sentence on me. I was like, you know, I don't know how much this time I have to spend, possibly eight years. Now you have to start figuring out how you're going to fit into this room with all these people, and what are you going to start doing with your time? You know, I'm, I spent a lot of time sleeping, and there came a point when I got off my bunk, I spent a lot of time not eating for the first week or so. I was, like, not eating. I was sleeping all the time. I was super depressed, and eventually people were like, you need to start coming off your bunk. You know, you need to get off your bunk. And I was like, I don't want to eat. I don't want to go out on the yard. I don't want to. I don't want them to bring me out for an hour a day so I can look at the outside in the cage and walk around so I can see the air and then be brought back into the space. Right. And but you know, you have to eventually. They're like, you can't just lay in here. The inmates will say, you can't just lay in your bed. You need to get off your bunk because um, while it is that the other inmates actually want to see, for the most part, people do well with their time. You know, they don't want to see you get into a deep depression. Um, the really interesting thing about women in prison is they will take care of each other in a way. Um, they will make things really hard for each other, don't get me wrong, but there is also a way that women will want to see each other do well, you know. Right, kind of a nurturing will, aspect there. Yeah, women yeah. will kind of nurture each other in like really weird ways, whatever way that they learned in their home life to nurture each other. And for me, they were saying, like, you need to get out of your bunk. You need to come outside. You need to start eating. Um, you need to start talking with people. Come down here and watch a show. They would invite me to play cards because you got to do this. You can't be depressed the whole time you're in here. You have to start doing your time, Right. you know. Right. And so you kind of learn by just talking with the other women. But you also learn the hard way. It's like I remember seeing a bookshelf on a, an empty bunk, and I walk over, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go get some books. And so I walk over, and I start looking at some books, and I grab a book, and this girl looks at me, and she's like, put that effing book down. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. I was like, I didn't, I'm really sorry. I didn't know. She's like, that is not your library. That's my library. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I am really sorry. I didn't know that I wasn't able to do these books. And she's like, if you need to ask for a book, you can ask me for a book. She said, this isn't for the public. You need to find your own way. Um, And so, you know, there was just a way, you know, and one thing you can count on in prison is that women will teach you the way. They will either scream it at you or tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I am am encouraged that they were trying to, if nothing else, teach you and and, uh, nurture you when they saw the process that you were going through. I mean, I can only imagine how depressed you were. I wouldn't have had an appetite. I don't think I would have wanted to see anyone. I think I would have wanted to hide forever until I could get out of that place. And I, I can't even imagine how scared and confused and just whirlwind what the hell has happened to me. I mean, I, I don't even know how you did that. I, that had to have been one of the hardest things you went through. Yeah, I mean, in that specific scenario, yeah. I think initially that first shock of being incarcerated and know that no amount of crying, no amount of tears, no amount of emotion, no amount of pleading, no amount of contact with your family, no amount of anything is going to change the fact that you are trapped and you don't have any rights or say so in anything at this point, you know, it's like if you were to get beat up in there, at best you might get brought to the doctor, but you'd be put in the same room with the same people, you know. Right. And so you kind of have to make a decision. It's like, how do you fit in here? Because if you make it harder on yourself, which you can, things are not going to end well and you don't have anywhere to go. Right. Yeah. And so you, you just, have nowhere to go. Well, you learn how to just pretty much get along with people, keep your mouth shut and do what they ask you to do and, and play by their rules. I mean, and that's probably how you got through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely how you do it. And I think one of the biggest things is like you can't seem ignorant. You know, there comes a point when it's like they might give you a pass one time, but if they give you that one pass, 
and you do something again, depending on how important that one specific thing is. And it could be, you know, it's like I, one of the things I've made jokes about even on TikTok, it's like you kind of have to make light of it is going to the bathroom, right? right? Whenever you go to the bathroom, the expectation is that you do something called a courtesy flush, which is where you go to the bathroom and whenever you're doing number two, you have to flush it down as you go. And I remember the first time I went to the bathroom, after you get over the entire shock of having to literally go to the bathroom, do your number two in front of everybody oh. in the middle of the room. So if any of you all know like about dumpers and rompers, and whenever you go to the bathroom and you wear a romper, you have to get yourself almost completely naked yeah. <laughs> yeah. to yeah. go to the bathroom out here. Um, and it was the same thing. It's like we had jumpsuits, so we had to completely strip down to do number two with no curtain, no privacy, no wall. And I remember the first time I was going to the bathroom, I mean, somebody screams, you know, they're like, flush the toilet, courtesy flush. And I was like, what's a courtesy flush? And they were like, <laughs> you have to flush whenever you're going number two. And people were screaming at me from the bunks because they start to smell it, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, so here, like, they went over, you're very vulnerable doing this number two in front of everybody, which is humiliating. Absolutely. And then you have people screaming at you, and you're like, oh, my God, they can smell it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and and, you know, that, and then there's a bunk etiquette as well, correct? Yeah, there's a whole system about this bunk thing. Um, and, and there's so many bunk etiquette things. It's like, first of all, it's like, who gets the bottom bunk? Who gets the top bunk? In, in general, the young people that are very able-bodied always get the top bunk. Unless you have traded, and by trading, I mean unless you have commissary, which is like canteen, like unless you have money where you can essentially say, hey, I want to get on a bottom bunk because on a bottom bunk you can get a little bit more privacy. Right. Um, you can trade food and actually like trays of food to certain people that are on a bottom bunk to get a bottom bunk. Um, but mm -hmm. the whole bunk etiquette is very serious. Like you can't just sit on your top bunk with your legs dangling down because people get very mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They get angry, you know, um, you don't hang that, you don't hang your blankets down. If your blanket falls, that stuff right there. I remember whenever my blanket would fall down and people would be like throwing my blanket up and they were like, this is the last time I'm going to tell you, you need to sleep neater. You don't sleep under your blanket. Oh, wow. You what? And here's it's actually a really interesting thing. It's like inmates generally don't sleep under their blanket because of that specific reason. Um, it's cleanliness, and also if your blanket keeps falling onto your bunkmates into their face, that stuff right there can actually irritate somebody enough to get into a fight with them. Oh wow! Because oh. they will take that blanket in their face as disrespect. Mm, um, because yeah. it is invading like their very small personal bubble, right. which the only thing that you have whenever you're in jail or prison is this very tiny, small mattress space of a bunk, right? Oh. And so that becomes a very sacred space. Yes. Um, and so whenever somebody is hanging their feet in front of you, whenever their blanket is falling down in front of your face, or if they have even having other inmates that are in the same room as you, if they are visiting your bunk too often, those things can invade on somebody's personal space, like they're very kind of bubble of autonomy in there. And that kind of stuff can turn very violent. Hopefully yeah. we didn't have to deal with that. But I, now how authentic is that? Is the show Orange is the New Black? Have you ever seen that? And tell me what your thoughts yeah, are. <laughs> I have seen it, but I don't re really remember too much of it. Um, but I am watching it now. Uh -huh. um, to kind of get a better idea. I will say there is a show out right now that's called Jailbird. It's on Netflix. Okay. And it is a lot more accurate. It really? is. Okay. It's about as accurate as it gets. And it's called Jailbirds? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. and it is actually filmed inside of a prison in California, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, it is the most accurate description of what it would probably be like in jail, only their scenario is different because the inmates inside of that show, they have their own two-person cells, and everybody kind of comes out of their cells into this, like, common living space, which we didn't have that. Ours was everything was together. Okay. So yeah, you were the, like in this big room. Yeah, in the drama is oh. that is it's all there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now tell me, you didn't have to serve, thank goodness, the whole eight-year sentence. So tell me what happened and how that how you got out so quickly. Yep. Um, so I ended up so in Tennessee where I was at. There was only one women's prison, and that was in the state capital of Nashville okay. that we knew of. Right? Everybody was like, "You're going to be going to the state jail." Anybody that gets felonies or gets sentenced to prison will go to the women's prison. And you know, so for me, I was like, "That's you know, I know that's where I'm going." But in general, everybody said, "Hey, prison's a lot easier than jail. Kind of like a college campus. You just have to be really aware." I, the other inmates that you just have to be really careful, okay. right? Because while it is cleaner, it is nicer. It is, you have a lot more opportunity to like do classes. It is also a lot more serious because there are people that are in there for life, right? That is right. their home. Right. Yeah. And so things are, you know, uh, it's, it's very serious. Uh, yeah. But so I assumed I was going there, but my mom had called me or it's not my mom had called me, but I had called my mom one day and she said to me, she said, Jackie, I found out that there was like this, prison that is in Johnson City, which is where I had been living, she said it is like a work camp style prison. And she was like, I'm going to try to get you in there. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. So she, I guess, had called this warden over and over and over again at this mini satellite prison in, which was essentially my hometown, um, which is crazy because there was only one women's prison. And then there was this mini satellite prison that functioned as a work camp. above the police station (laughs) where I had been going to college. And so my mom called and called and called. And finally, um, one day, you just never know whenever you're going to get transferred into the prison because they don't tell you. And I think it's probably for safety reasons. So that way nobody, like, intercepts your prison transfer because they just never know. Um, But one day I just got called and they said, turn quiz, pack your stuff, Um, you're being transferred. And so, you know, you just collect your stuff. And I um, got transferred into that mini satellite prison because I think my mom had called enough time and the warden had reviewed my case to see if I would be a um, a flight risk or if I would be a violent offender that would warrant him not wanting to bring me in. So eventually he got to look at my entire case and see if he felt like I would be a good fit there. Right. Because the way that they functioned is we didn't have any vocational programming. We didn't have any like GED. We didn't have cosmetology classes we didn't have anything like that we didn't have aa we didn't have na we didn't have drug recovery nothing it simply functioned as a work camp which meant that we went there and we worked that is how we spent the entirety of our sentence and we worked out in the community and every day that we worked there we got one good day taken off the back end of our sentence so okay Yeah. And so what that meant is instead of serving the amount of time that you have to serve in order to be eligible for parole, it was shortening that amount of time. So good behavior. So whenever I got there, I just immediately got put to work. um, And we had to wear civilian clothes, as they called it, out in the community. We had handlers, which were either registered community members, uh, police officers, or correctional officers. They would assist us out to our work sites out in the community, and they had us wear civilian clothes because they didn't want the community to know that there were inmates. 
out in the community, but it saved the city like so much money. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. And so as I was serving my time, there came a point whenever I had enough good time and enough good behavior that I was eligible to go up for parole. I think it was at about a year um, is whenever I was eligible to go up and I had to make the decision at that. um, You know, I think one of the things about inmates is they're very aware of the system that they're in. And that happens by experience, right? So whenever a lot of women are going up for parole and everybody's getting denied for parole because of they didn't have enough time served, you know, it's like what happens is collectively the inmates are talking about what does that mean, right? So if you've served 12 months and they put you off for another six months or another year um, and that keeps happening, we know that if I go up on my very first parole hearing and they're denying everybody, that means I will probably get denied. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what I did is I actually made the decision to deny my parole hearing for the very first hearing and put it off for six months to get more good time. So that way I had a better chance and more time served nice. okay. whenever I went in front of them in the first place. Something you learned, something you figured out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so at about 18 months in, I went in front of the parole board, and that is a whole experience in and of itself because you have to go in front of a parole board, and they have to determine if they feel like you are sufficiently remorseful of whatever happened in order to grant you parole. Right. So, you know, I went in front of the parole board, my mom showed up, and my sister showed up, and also the superintendent of the prison had um, recommended me to go because I ended up working as his secretary because I was young, I was smart, I was not a troublemaker, and he realized that very quickly. And he was just like, I think his thought was, I want to get you into a position where you're going to be useful to us um, and also stay out of any kind of messiness or drama that's going to happen in this jail or in this prison. Um, I want to keep you as busy as possible so that way you don't get involved in it and don't end up getting hurt. Nice. Yeah, and so I ended up going up for parole and getting um, granted parole, which meant that I got to go home and serve the rest of my sentence out in the community, which was about six years. Well, thank God, Jackie. So you were let go. So what happened then? Were you able to just, you know, I know you were on parole or you had a parole officer or whatever. You had to report to him and all those things. But did you actually go home? Did you get your own apartment? What happened after that? Yeah, so um, you don't just automatically get to walk out of the doors that day. They have to start creating your release plan from there. And um, it was, I think, a month or so from the time I got granted parole until they had all of my paperwork in order ready to release me. Okay. And they also had to approve where I was going to be released to, which was my sister's house. And so my sister, who is a year older than me, she's also my best friend, um, I went straight home with her. And I lived with her because she lived in that city anyways. Um, and I knew I didn't want to go live with my mom because, right. things, you know, my mom was still an addict. She was um, actually was a morphine addict at this point. Oh, she had no. went from heroin to morphine. And, um, and she did that by doctor shopping. Um, so I went home with my sister because I knew that my siblings were always my biggest support system. And I lived with her, and she helped me get a job where I was working before. And I just started working. She let me use her car, um, and which was so interesting because she was also a single mom with my nephew. He was just this little this little baby because she was pregnant whenever I went to prison. She had just found out she was pregnant. And whenever I got out, she had this little toddler. 
And so I just helped her take care of her son and we kind of shared her car until I was able to start saving up enough money to get my own apartment and get my own vehicle as well. Good for you. So when you actually got out of jail or prison, was it a culture shock to go back? Do you know what? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I, I think it is. It's a culture shock in a lot of different ways because the thing about parole that's really interesting is that it's very hard. Yes. Parole is very, very hard. And a lot of people don't make it. Whenever you think about recidivism numbers, which is the rate that people go back to prison or jail, really? it's because parole is so hard. Well, <laughs> why is it, is why so, is it hard. so hard? Is it just because, was it hard for you too? Yeah. Or? Okay. Um, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, it was, it was very hard. It is the amount of stress that you live in knowing that even a speeding ticket, um, even if, I mean, if you think about how many people, like everybody every day, people are getting speeding tickets every day, right? Right. Um, any time that you have contact with a police officer, there is the chance for them to just immediately revoke your parole or probation and you go back to prison. And that could have been like a speeding ticket. That could have been, um, you know, maybe that could have been me picking up somebody that I, that I knew that had gotten drunk or, you know, like in college right. and driving them home. Mm. Um, if I was caught around somebody that was under the influence, I could go back to jail. If I um, lost my job for whatever reason, um, that could get me reincarcerated. If I was unable to pay my supervision fees, that would violate my probation or parole. Wow. Oh my um, gosh. No wonder. Oh yeah. I mean, and you know, there was a time that I, you know, I was working and, um, you also have to go, you know, you have to get your DNA tested. And for me, that was actually getting my DNA tested was, I think for me was very, very shocking. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, it was actually interesting. I thought about that the, the other day, having to go get DNA swabbed as part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it meant that but this very personal thing, like my DNA is logged into a system. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So was this six years of probation that you had to serve? Yeah, six years of probation. Oh uh-huh. Oh and so that meant every month I would have to go see my probation or parole officer. I would have to pay them their fines. They would drug test me. They would check to see if they felt like I was doing everything correctly. Um, and for me, it's like even knowing what the expectations of probation or parole were, it's like I had to go through a 12-step process. I had to, uh, you know, take all these classes that were very, very inconvenient. And just imagine, how many of you all have ever missed a meeting on accident? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, imagine, you know, it's like I have had times where it's like I just kind of get caught up in my day-to-day um, you know, I was working, I was going to college, I was actually in a relationship, and I had was actually starting a business outside of that. And, you know, just managing my regular calendar and, you know, just trying to live. And if I were to have accidentally missed one of those meetings, even if it was on accident, that would give them a right to violate me. Yeah, yeah. And send me back to prison, you know. And so for me, yeah, it is like any, you know, I lived on pins and needles for six years trying to make sure that, you know, I didn't even so much as get a speeding ticket or jaywalking, you know, yeah, yeah. or being out past curfew because I had a curfew that I had to abide by for six years. I, I will say there was a time in this that I was getting really close to the end of it. I was in college. I was paying everything I needed to get paid. I was working. And one of my girlfriends had invited me out to go have a glass of wine with her after work one day. And I knew, I was like, I'm not supposed to have any wine. But I was like, you know, I'm almost done with my girls. What is a glass of red wine with dinner? I was like, it's wine. Um, you know, it's like, you know, of all things, I had actually got called into my parole officer's office the next day. And she said, I got a report that you were out drinking last night. And I was like, you're kidding. 
Oh. And she said, no, can you tell me about that? And I said, yeah. I said, I went to Chili's, and after I had worked and I had a glass of red wine with a salad while I was catching up with one of my girlfriends, and she said, you know that drinking is against the parole expectations. And she said, give me a reason why I shouldn't violate you. And it was like one of those instances where I was just like, you're going to violate me over doing everything that I should be doing in my day-to-day life. I'm living. I'm almost done with this. I am going to college. I'm actually graduating college. I have been working every day. You know, I have done everything right, and you're really going to consider violating me for having a glass of wine. Right, yeah. And, yeah, you know, and and I think that's where it comes. It's like there comes a point when you're on this for so long, and it's like you just want to be released from it, right? Right. Yeah. That even something like having a glass of red wine, you know, you're just like, is it really that big of a deal? But it is, you know, it is. But Jackie, you told the truth. You know, you knew now to, to you just told the truth. And she was probably like, you know, you've been on parole for six years. A glass of wine. Okay, I, I get it. Hopefully she agreed and thought, okay, you're good. Just don't do it again until it's done, I guess. Right. Yeah, essentially. But had I had a different officer that maybe didn't like me, you know, that could have got me sent back to prison for a six-year sentence, essentially. Yeah. Let me me ask you this, though. I know now that you have your own business, and I want all of my listeners to hear this because it's a t-shirt business, correct? Well, um, I have started a couple businesses over the years. Um, I don't actively do that right now. Um, But I had, (laughs) it's so funny you actually said that because I was actually considering it. But yes, I have done a screen printing business, and I have also had a very, very successful, I actually had three businesses. I had opened up a mixed martial arts gym in Tennessee uh, when I lived there, and it is actually still operating under my co-owner. Nice. So that was one business, and then I had started a t-shirt business where there kind of came a point when I was just like so desperate, right? I was tired of working in crap jobs because getting a job after going to prison and having a felony on record, no matter no matter getting that. a bachelor's degree or not, yeah, yeah. Um, you have a felony. There's something called yeah. yeah. There's something called collateral consequences, which are all the statutes and policies that prevent people from moving on and getting employed and being able to pursue everything from like voting to employment, education, public service, anything. Um, They're called collateral consequences. And that is what actually happens after somebody comes out of prison. Prison was hard. It was a thing. But actually, my whole life after prison has been significantly more challenging in its own unique way. But And so part of that was like I had just got to the point where I had had my daughter and I was just so tired of working in the restaurant industry, even though I had a bachelor's degree and knowing that not many people were going to hire me inside of my degree, which was marketing in Spanish. So I started a t-shirt business where I was designing and making t-shirts that were marketed out to Spanish speakers, you know, because that had been a a big part of my training in college. And from there, I ended up getting employed in nonprofit work and realized that that was, this is what I work in now as a social worker. I started getting involved in nonprofit work and realized that that was, definitely where I wanted to spend my my time and energy you're helping so. people I mean you're actually helping and I don't know if, if that's the right way to put it but maybe you're helping prep them for what they can face once they get out or you know uh, the challenges they faced when they were inside you know those kinds of things that maybe they weren't told because heck you weren't told either yeah I know and you know for what I do for work now is I work in that it's, it's a transitional program but also a home for women coming out of prison so they get paroled out to us okay 
Um, and I am, I am their main point of contact. So I'm the one that accepts them into our program. I'm the one that case manages them. I'm the one that works to collaborate with them on how to be successful in our program. I'm the one that holds them accountable. I'm the one that is able to terminate them from the program if it's not working out. But, you know, in this program, so that's what I do now is working with women coming out of prison. And, you know, I think that one of the most interesting things is um, I don't know if I'm even helping them in that capacity because the biggest realization that I have is that almost every woman that is in prison right now has some very serious mental health issues, some more serious than others. And when I say more serious, I mean like very, very serious. Wow. And... You know, my role now is I'm able to understand what these women have experienced inside of the prison system, but I'm also able to understand their life, right? And I'm, I'm, most of them have a story that is kind of similar to mine in many ways, yeah. like childhood and or, you know, maybe it's domestic violence. And what I'm able to provide for them is a, a true collaborative, therapeutic collaborator. You know, I'm their advocate. Right. Um, I have really hard conversations with them about what their success should look like for themselves or not should look like for themselves, like what they want their values to be, like how do they start living inside of those values inside of our organization. And I and I always tell them, like, you're here now. You've been in prison. The last thing I want to see from you, because I have to work with parole officers. I have to work with probation officers. I have to work with prison counselors. Wow. Um, you know, I have to work with jail staff to bring women in and you know, and I always tell them, I'm like, the very last thing I want to do is see you end up back in the prison system. What I want to do is see you all become successful. Absolutely. And I want to help you define what success looks like for you. And I, like, walk with them the whole way through that as uh, much as possible. I'd say you're helping them, Jackie. <laughs> you know, I mean. It just looks a little different, you know, because yeah. um, I have helped with, like, workforce development. I have helped with, you know, a lot of just, like, different programs like that. But for my role right now, it's just, it's like a very specific kind of help. Right, yeah, um, yeah. That a lot of them have never experienced before. And, you know, though, Jackie, the fact that you've come out on the other side, so knowledgeable and so poised after having to face such a horrific eight years of your life, kudos to you for that. And for stopping the chain of events that happened when you were a child. I know you're a mother now. You have two children. And... Yeah. The fact that you can look back and go, you know what, all of that was horrific, but I'm so proud of the woman you've become now. I'm just so dang proud of you. Good for you, girl. Thank you. I am too. <laughs> you should be. And you know what, if anybody wants to know more about Jackie and her journey, she does kind of talk about it on her, well, she definitely talks about it on her TikTok page. Any question, no matter how personal it is, she'll probably answer it. Um, so Jackie, can you tell my listeners where to find you and, um, anything else you'd like to tell them? Yeah, I think the best way to find me right now is on TikTok, specifically in regards to this. Um, cause you know, I keep my other social media accounts a little bit more private. Okay. Um, but on TikTok, it is Jackie.serve. And I'm also working to move into YouTube and on YouTube, it is from the inside, just nice. from the inside of prison. Nice. Yeah, so I'll be starting a YouTube channel where I go more in-depth about not only life inside of prison, but just really what happens from the inside coming out of prison and all that. So, Wonderful. Yeah. And I'll add all of your information on my show notes. And uh, you have been fascinating. And I think you're probably my longest interview so far. So congratulations on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a talker. <laughs> no, but thank you so much. Um, I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you. Hope you have a really great rest of your weekend to you. If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist 
and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.